Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've provided Bibles in the chairs. It's page 977. If you don't own a Bible, we have a Bible that we would like to give you. So over at the welcome table, we have these ESV story Bibles. Those are yours. You can get those at any point, whether you want to go get it now or whether you want to get that on your way out after the service. We want to make the Bible available to you. We want to read it. We want to see what the Lord has to say to us. And so we ask you to take one. That's your gift for being here with us this morning. How do we know that the gospel is true? How do we know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? How do we know that the gospel has the power to transform lives, to change hearts, to become more and more and more like Jesus as we behold him more and more and more? How do we know that the gospel has the power to break down the dividing walls of hostility that would separate us and in this place erect peace and unity, not just reconciling us to God, but reconciling us to each other as we are united together in Christ? How do we know this to be true? I think that if we were to summarize our thoughts and attempts to answer that question, we would basically come down with one word, revelation. God has revealed it to us. We have received God's message of reconciliation through his revelation. He has told us so. He has given us his authoritative and inspired word to guide us. He has given us the church through which we are preached to and taught scripture that we might know that God has revealed himself to us so that we might know that this gospel is true. But he has also revealed it into our hearts. It's not merely an outward message. It's an inward message. God has enlightened the eyes of our hearts. All of those who have truly repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, they do so because God has given them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. God has done that work. God has made himself known, both outwardly through scripture, through the church, but also inwardly in our hearts through faith. God has made himself known. Now, those of us who follow Christ, we know this to be true, right? I mean, we, we, we don't question this in a sense. We all agree God has revealed himself both inwardly and outwardly through his word, through his spirit. But there's a difference between knowing, right? Knowing up here, knowing in our heads and knowing here, knowing in our hearts, fully receiving, fully trusting, fully experiencing the power of the gospel. There's a difference between giving an intellectual assent to the truths of scripture Affirming the doctrine, affirming this, these statements of, of just religious information. There's more to it than that. But yet, we struggle, don't we? We struggle to fully take a hold and experience all of the power of the gospel in our lives. We struggle to believe. We profess that this is the word and that this word has enlightened the eyes of our hearts, but yet 
We struggle with doubt and despair. We worry. We are fearful. We become angry. We think pridefully about ourselves. We make excuses for our condition. We try to seek control in whatever means possible. We are filled with unbelief. We are tempted to lose heart when life is difficult, when circumstances are just rough and they're outside of our control, when things don't go the way that that we hope that they would, and when at times it seems like all of the promises of God are going unfulfilled and I am lost and alone in the world. Our experiences at times lead us to question, to doubt. Is this real? Is this message true? Why don't I see the power and the victory of the gospel more? Perhaps perhaps you're experiencing that today. Perhaps you've spoken to people who are unbelievers or maybe you're even here today as someone who does not follow Christ and you're wondering, is Christianity true? Is this real? Can I believe this? How can I really know that Jesus is the way to God? Well, my friends, God has not left his revelation of the mystery of Christ without proof. He has given us though he did not have to, tangible, observable evidence. God did not intend for the gospel to stop at mere words and faith to simply be in agreement with a certain set of religious information. God has made himself known personally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has made his will, his purposes, and his promises known to us in his holy word. He is his made himself known in power as he's given the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of every person who has truly turned away from themselves to follow Christ. But that's not all. That's not all. God has given additional, personal, present, experiential proof that this message is true and that his promises are And will ultimately be fulfilled. But unfortunately for many of us. It's proof that we often fail to see. And we often fail to participate in. We overlook it. We minimize it. We treat it as optional. We question the power of the gospel. Because we fail to see the power of the gospel. Through the means that God has given for us to see the power of the gospel. And how are we intended to see its power? How is the power of the gospel displayed to us. And for the world to be able to see. And to know that it's true and it's real. Well Paul gives us two reasons. This morning in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 7 through 13. That we might know, that we might experience the power of the gospel. That we might know for sure that the gospel is true as we see the lives of God's people being transformed and as they are brought together and united in the church. The power of the gospel is displayed in life transformation and in community. When our lives are changed and we are brought together into fellowship, then the glory of the gospel is revealed. 
Now, I want us to be able to carefully consider both of these. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at this text. I tried to do it in one, but it was just too important. We would just be skipping too much. And so the truth that we're going to wrestle with this morning, the central idea that I want us to cover this morning, is that the mystery of the gospel is made known through the transformed lives of God's people. The mystery of the gospel is made known through the transformed lives of God's people. God's wisdom, God's grace, God's power are put up on display for the world and for us to see when the lives of believers are visibly changed by the gospel. And in this passage, Paul is setting himself up as an example for us to imitate. So with that, let's read Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access to him through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. How do we know the wisdom, the grace, and the power of the gospel? What practical demonstrations are we given that it is real? Paul says in this passage, look at me. Look at my life. Remember who I was. And remember what I have become by God's grace. See the transformation in my life and follow my example as I follow Christ. And so we are going to simply... Look at the characteristics of life transformation that we see listed in this text so that by God's grace, our lives might also be a demonstration of the transforming power of the gospel. The first way we see the mystery of the gospel made known through the transformed lives of God's people is in that God makes them ministers of the gospel. God makes them ministers of the gospel. I want us to think about the context for a minute because it's very, very telling. Here we see the pastoral heart of Paul. You can tell that he loves these Gentile saints in Ephesus and he wants them to truly understand the riches of God's grace that was given to them that they have received in Christ. And we know this because he's anticipating their questions. He's anticipating their doubts. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has spoken 
of the unbelievable power and rich grace of God given to us in salvation that not only reconciles us to God, restores us completely by the work of God's power and his grace alone, but also has united us together and that now we are fellow heirs. We are fellow children of God. We are fellow saints. We are fellow members of the same body united together as citizens of God's kingdom. God has overcome all of that. He has taken those who were dead in their sin, enslaved to the world, the devil, and their own sinful flesh. Those who, like all mankind, were children of wrath, and he has made them one. He has reconciled them to himself, and he has reconciled them to each other. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between them and is now building them together into a dwelling place, into a holy temple in the Lord. And Paul is about to pray for them. He wants to pray because he's overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. And he's about ready to to transition to say, okay, this is what this looks like practically for you. But before he does that, maybe his chains rattle. Maybe the guard comes to the door of his cell. But anyway, he's reminded of the fact that he's a prisoner in chains. And so he stops and he takes a minute to address their questions because he doesn't want them to lose heart. It's as if he can anticipate them saying, Well, Paul, if this is such a powerful message, if God has saved us by his grace and delivered us from sin, if Christ has gained victory over every rule and authority and power and dominion for all time, and he is leading the church, if God's power is really available and at work in everyone who believes, then why, Paul, why are you in prison? Why? Why is this the case? Why is there division and animosity and sin sin still remaining in the lives of believers? Why is life so hard? Why are we being persecuted? Paul, do you not realize that your situation seems to contradict the very power of the gospel that you proclaim? Does that resound with anyone here this morning? But as a good pastor, Paul anticipates their questions. He foresaw all their doubts, and so he stops from that message, and he addresses their concerns so that they would not lose heart. And so here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, he breaks from that message so that he can help them to understand that his life and his ministry are not a contradiction of the wisdom, power, and grace of the gospel. Instead, it confirms it. It proves that it's true. And last time we were looking at this passage in verses 1 through 6, he said, look, we know that this message isn't true because Jew and Gentiles are now fellow heirs. They're members of the same body. They're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This purpose of the gospel, of this plan of salvation, it's being fulfilled. We know that this message is true because I didn't make this up. You have to understand, this was not my idea. I received it by revelation, just like the other holy apostles and prophets did by the Holy Spirit. And this message of ours, they agree. And not only that, but that same Holy Spirit who gave that message to us is speaking it into your hearts that you can perceive my wisdom and insight. You know that it's true because he's revealing it to you. This gospel is God's authoritative revelation to us. And he said to them, my imprisonment, it doesn't prove that the message is false. 
Instead, it shows the great value of it. I am a steward of the grace that was given to me. I am a prisoner for Christ. I am in chains for you. My suffering proves that the gospel is precious. And so now in verses 7 through 13, he goes even further. He says, do you want undeniable proof in the power of the gospel? Then just look at my life. Look at me. Look at who I was. Look at what I've become by grace. Look at my willingness to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ as proof that this gospel message is true. And implicit within Paul's example is a call for us to imitate him as he imitates Christ by the power and strength that God supplies. The transformation of Paul's life proved that the gospel is true. I mean, just remember who Paul was. If Maybe you're not familiar with the story, right? Paul, whose name used to be Saul, was not always a Christian, right? It was not a, uh, an idea that was just fundamental. He didn't grow up as a Christian. Instead, he was just the opposite. He was about as far opposite as you could possibly imagine, okay? Paul hated the Gentiles. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, He beat them, he imprisoned them, he went after them, he even cast his vote to kill them. That's who Paul was. Paul was a terrorist. As far away from the gospel as you could possibly imagine, there was Paul. And he was on his way to a town called Damascus in Syria. He's chasing Christians even into foreign lands to capture them and imprison them. And he has the authority of the chief priests to do so. And when he's on his way to that land, he is met on the road by the resurrected and ascended Christ. He's struck blind for three days. And he goes on to Damascus, and there God sent a man named Ananias to Paul. We read about this in Acts chapter 9. And Ananias, this Christian, this follower of Christ, he's afraid to go. He's afraid because he knows just how evil Paul is. He knows all the evil that he's done. And he knows that Paul has legitimate authority to do so. So he says, God, are you out of your mind? I I, I can't go there. But God said to Ananias, go. For Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias went to Damascus. He reported God's message to him. And he prayed for Saul. Saul's eyesight was restored. And having been transformed by the gospel from a Christ hater to a Christ follower, Paul arose and was baptized and began his ministry as a chosen instrument of the gospel. And so that's all the background that comes into verse 7 where Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You see, Paul didn't make himself a minister. It wasn't like Paul just decided, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a preacher. 
This was not his idea. It's not something that he himself desired. It was completely the opposite. He was made one. God chose him as a minister of the gospel. He was commissioned by Christ. This was not his own doing. It was the gift of the grace of God. Now, Paul's calling as a minister of the gospel is very unique. And I don't imagine any other person having a call quite like Paul's. But within the call of the gospel that saves each of us, that sets each of us apart for God, is a call to be a minister of the gospel. We are called to, by passages like Matthew 28 or Acts 1, to make disciples of all nations. We are called to minister to the gospel, to preach it to those who have not heard, but also to those who have heard through encouragement, through comfort, through service, through exhortation, through admonishment, through rebuke, and even through church discipline. This gospel ministry was given to each of us in some capacity. Paul even tells us later in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints, that is all God's people, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We all have a part to play as ministers of the gospel, to help all of us reach maturity in Christ. The life-transforming power of the gospel is displayed when those who once served their own selfish and sinful ambitions now seek to serve Christ in his body. When they no longer live for themselves, but for he who for their sake died and was raised. When we serve Christ... Rather than what the world serves, our lives display the truth of the gospel. It is counter to what the world offers. So the gospel is put on display. But we don't serve as ministers of the gospel out of our own power. The mystery of the gospel is made known through the transformed lives of God's saints. Second, when they live as unworthy recipients of the abundant grace of God. Paul continues in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace given me by the working of his power. That's huge. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul doesn't deserve the grace of God. He's fully aware of it. He didn't earn it through hard work or through his exceptional moral character. He wasn't born into it or was raised in the right family and that's what made him a Christian. It wasn't granted to him as the result of his efforts, his work, or his power. It was given to him. It was the gift of God's grace. And this grace of God, this divine power was effective. That word there, working of God's power, it doesn't mean that God's just kind of trying aimlessly to see what might happen. No, it means effective working. It's the effective working of God's power. God never fails to accomplish all of his purposes. We certainly know that that was the case for Paul. God accomplished his purposes in Paul. 
He was radically changed by the grace of God. And in the same effective power that Paul is talking about here, he also prays that we would understand is it work in us as well. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 19, he prayed that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would truly know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the effective working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. That power, that effective power that we have seen in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ over all things, that same power was at work in Paul and he understands is at work in us as well. That Christ exalting, victorious over all things, raising from death to life power is at work, is available in each person who believes. And yet Paul still prays that they would come to understand that. He knows that there's difficulty in taking hold of it, right? But nevertheless, Paul was made a minister of the gospel a steward of God's grace, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles because of the effective power of the gospel. The grace and power of God are absolutely effective to fulfill every purpose in our lives and we don't deserve a bit of it. There is nothing that we can do, not in our best intentions, not in our most desperate efforts to ever earn the grace of God. Paul goes on, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He actually makes up his own superlative here. He says, I am less than the very least of all the saints, or I am the least est est of all the saints. I am the chief of sinners. Now, Paul is not depreciating himself here. He's not running himself down so that you would feel sorry for him and say, oh, Paul, that's not true. No, he actually knew that this was the case. He knew this because he had persecuted the church. He was a terrorist. But yet, by God's unbelievable, lavish grace, he was saved. He was acutely aware of his sin, and, his, and he was deeply acquainted with his absolute unworthiness of God's grace. If there was anyone that ever deserved a front row seat in the deepest, darkest pit of hell, it was Paul. And yet his hatred of Christ was covered by an overflow of God's lavish and abundant grace. So that Paul says, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. He summed it up well in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Timothy 1, chapters 12, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. He says, I thank him who gave me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, every single one of us here, without question, could never deserve the grace of God. We have all, no matter how good we claim to be, have rejected God and tried to live our own lives, to try to live our lives apart from him, as if this is my world and I am God. We've all tried to do it. And as a result of that, none of us deserves grace. We have all rejected God. But yet God is merciful. And so it's very ironic that somehow we think that God's glory is shown in us when we appear to have it all together. Or we think that we have to clean up our act before God will accept us or have to present this veneer of self-righteous piety and self-justification that God's grace can only be proven as I seek to make known the glory of God by my own strength, by my own effort, by my own power. God needs me for this. When in reality, God's glory is displayed in our weakness. When we truly understand And accept the fact that I am woefully undeserving of his mercy. His patience, his kindness, his mercy is displayed not when I appear to have it all together and when I stand on my own self-righteousness, but when I humbly crawl to him as a wretched and undeserving sinner. The power of the gospel is displayed in the salvation of the unworthy not in the self-help or the betterment of the self-righteous. So if you're here today and you're just feeling overwhelmed with your sin and you realize, man, I, just, I, I, I am so aware and profoundly just disturbed by my own wretchedness before God, then you are in a very, very good place. The danger is for those who don't. But either way, the promise is the same. Come to him, you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. The mystery of the gospel is made known through the transformed lives of God's people as they are made ministers of the gospel and as they have come as unworthy recipients of the grace of God. And third, as worshipers of of the glory of Christ. You know, we proclaim what we behold. We talk about what we treasure. Anybody, like, we, we have a bunch of newly married, so we're kind of lacking on engaged couples, so I'm looking at you, JC, right? You talk about what you love, right? Right, you, you guys know this, right? You talk about what you love. We, when you're engaged to a girl, I mean, that is that's like what you talk about. You talk about the wedding. You talk about how just great she is, how you can't wait to be married to her, all that stuff. You just talk obnoxiously about that, right? We know this to be true. We proclaim what we behold. We talk about what we treasure. 
And so in thinking about the gospel, our obedience to the call to ministry will never come out of a sense of self-willed duty, but out of our delight in the abundant riches of God's grace. God's, or I'm sorry, gospel proclamation flows out of worship. This amazing, powerful, life-transforming, saving grace of God comes to us, and it comes to us with a twofold purpose, just like we see in Paul there in verses 8 and 9, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. By his grace, God has transformed the persecutor of Christ into a preacher for Christ, an antagonist towards the Gentiles, to his apostle, to the Gentiles. But make no mistake about it, Paul's gospel ministry did not flow from a sense of obligation or duty. It was fueled out of his worship for Christ. And we know that right there because of verse 8, that Paul would preach to them of the unsearchable riches of Christ. He would proclaim the fathomless, the inexhaustible, the incomprehensible worth of Jesus. Paul can only describe the precious worth of Christ for the souls of desperately sinful men in terms of riches. It's the only analogy he could come up with to do justice for what has been accomplished. He uses this word five times in Ephesians to describe the priceless value of the gospel. That though by nature we were dead in our sin, enslaved and deserving of God's wrath, Paul reminds us of the treasure of salvation. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might get this. We might understand, we might seek to grasp this. In in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you get what Paul is saying here? He is saying that Christ is so precious, worth so much more, that we will actually spend all of eternity seeking to dig deep into the treasure and the worth and the privilege of knowing Christ and we will never, ever, ever exhaust it. We will never fully grasp just how precious Christ is. And so we proclaim it, the infinite worth of Christ. We proclaim it because the glory of Christ is worth more than anything else. When we truly grasp just how unworthy we are of the grace of God and just how precious Christ is, what we have been given, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, when we stand in awe of the glory of Christ, we don't have to work up the will to go out and tell others about Jesus. We will want to proclaim Jesus. We will gladly proclaim what we behold. The key to successful evangelism is not the right words, the right tactics. It's just getting that message oh so tightly compact that people couldn't say no. It's knowing and loving Jesus. 
Right? People will receive it when they understand that your life and your passion matches what you preach. So that's the first purpose we see as worshipers of Christ in verse 8, that we proclaim what we behold. But second, in verse 9, we participate in the power of the gospel. The overwhelming grace of God set Paul apart to proclaim the truth and beauty of Christ to the Gentiles, but also to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, first of all, just notice his audience widens here. It's not just the Gentiles, but everyone, all people. Paul was sent out as an emissary of Christ to reveal God's eternal plan of salvation to everyone who would believe. As he proclaimed this once hidden mystery of God's eternal gospel plan, the power of the gospel took effect in the hearts of people and they were radically changed. And he had a front row seat. He was right there, had the privilege to participate in God's eternal plan to powerfully save a people for himself. The word bring to light right there in verse 9 is the same word we see used in chapter 1 verse 18 where he prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. See, Paul understood the power of the unsearchable riches of Christ, that as he went out, as this ambassador for Christ, preaching the treasure of the gospel, that God would powerfully work through the message to enlighten the eyes of those whom he has chosen and set apart for himself, so that they who were formerly, this message that was once formerly hidden, this message of salvation, was now be made known. It switches the lights on. The power of the gospel is made manifest right before his eyes as he proclaims it. He sees their hearts enlightened that they too might be transformed to treasure Christ. Paul got to see the power of the gospel as he proclaimed it. Friends, do you understand that the gospel is more than a word message? It is more than a set of religious beliefs. It is a conduit. And as we are impacted by the riches of Christ... And we faithfully proclaim the unsearchable, infinite worth of God in Christ. God connects that conduit to the hearts of those whom he has set apart for himself. And he flips the switch. The power comes on and moves through. And suddenly people are transformed from death to life. They are given sight. They move from darkness to life. And since you probably, like me, just even in sharing this, have images of Frankenstein in your heads, we are like Igor who comes by and he connects the electrodes. God creates the cadaver. Christ brings the lightning. And as we stand there in awe of what is just happening like Igor, we see the power come through and we say, he's alive. She's alive. They're alive. It is breathtaking. It is awesome. It is wonderful. It is worship. Through the preaching of the gospel, lives are changed from death to life, from darkness to light, from being blind to now being able to see. Now, I'm going to save the bulk of what I have to say from verses 9 through 11 for next week. But this life-transforming power 
is so evident in these lives being transformed that the intricate wisdom of God is even made manifest. It's even made known. It's seen by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the very existence of the church itself proves that God's plan of salvation worked. We're going to look more at that next time, Lord willing. Those who have once hated Christ in the gospel living as rebels and enemies to God, just like Paul, are transformed to love and follow and to submit to Christ Jesus as their Lord. We see that in verse 11, that there's a change of allegiance. There's a change of love. They go from living for and serving only themselves to living for and serving Christ and him alone. Those who were once separated from Christ, alienated from God's kingdom, Strangers to God's promises of salvation, having no hope and without God in the world, as we saw back in chapter 2, are now united to Christ according to verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Like Paul, those who were once outcast, those who were once subject to God's wrath as enemies have been transformed by the gospel and given a spirit-empowered boldness to proclaim Christ. Through him, they have been given a confidence, courage, and a joyousness in the gospel that drives out fear. Now, this is huge. That word boldness there, you know, we often think of boldness in terms of just like courage and bravery and just like resolute will. I'm determined I'm going to march the gates of hell themselves, right? That's what we think of. But this word is also attached to the idea of joy, that our boldness comes from joy, from joy-filled delight. And that joy-filled delight, our boldness, is a matter of worship. We worship because now we've been reconciled to God and we have access in one spirit to the Father. That our access to God through Christ overwhelms our hearts with joy. And that joy is what drives out fear and doubt and worry and despair. So that we come to him and we proclaim him with confidence. Our confidence comes as we are united to the Father by the Holy Spirit. This boldness and confident access are ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is not simply a man-made profession. I don't have faith just because I said so. I don't declare myself to be a Christian living by faith. Faith is an active dependence upon Christ that leads to certain and steadfast action, according to this passage. Our worship is not expressed in our singing, but in our everyday faith-filled words, thoughts, actions, and attitudes as we seek to learn and to convey the unsearchable riches of Christ through our bold and confident access to the Father. Does that not change the way we think about ministry? Does it not change the way we think about proclaiming the gospel? Does it not change the way we think about even doing things like the dishes? The mystery of the gospel is made known through the transformed lives of God's saints, through their ministry, through their gratitude for the the abundant grace of God, and through their worship. But finally to their willingness to suffer for glory. You know, our world 
doesn't have a category for a theology of suffering. We naturally and innately want to avoid it at all costs. We seek comfort. We seek ease. We seek sort of an emotional peace. We want to steer away from anything that might be hard or difficult or challenging. Which is perhaps why the mystery of the gospel is most clearly displayed in the lives, the transformed lives of the saints when they are willing to suffer for the gospel. I mean, nothing shows the value of something more than our willingness to sacrifice deeply for it. In verse 13, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, if you know Paul's story, you know that he faced many tribulations, many hardships for the sake of Christ. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. Eventually, he even lost his life for the sake of the gospel. But through it all, he was willing to endure because Paul understood. Paul knew that his trials were not without purpose. They were not in vain. His suffering had a point. He was a prisoner, not because of the Jews or because of the Romans. He was a prisoner for Christ. He faced affliction for his flock. It was for their good and it was for Christ's glory. Paul suffered and was suffering as a display of his love for the Ephesians. Paul suffered as a demonstration of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we often just like to skim over passages like this. We like to ignore it. But the Bible is filled with a theology of suffering. And Paul makes it explicit just in 2 Timothy 3, 12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which I would hope is everyone who's following Christ, will be persecuted. What was that? Was it just kind of unique to Paul in his time? Was he just kind of foolishly, like masochistically kind of getting involved in all sorts of trouble? Or is there something universal there? We learn from passages like 2 Corinthians 4 or Romans 8 that Paul understood that suffering is the prelude to glory. It sets the stage. It prepares our hearts. It opens our eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of the final glory that we will receive as we are united with Christ for all eternity. It makes it all the more precious because we see how much it costs. We identify with the sufferings of Christ. And so we look to it in faith and in confidence knowing that there is waiting for us an eternal weight of glory. And this light and momentary affliction that we experience is nothing compared to it. But Paul was willing to suffer faithfully, not just so that he would experience that final glory, but so that the Ephesians and we would as well. You know, we lose heart when we lose perspective. But Paul assures us that every trial Every difficulty that we experience in life is according to the good, gracious, wise, and eternal purpose of God in Christ for our glory. And so whatever our lot, God has taught us to say, it is well. It's well with my soul. 
Paul says to us, do you want to know that the gospel is real? Do you want evidence of the grace and the wisdom and the power of God in Christ? Well, then, friends, just look at my life and look at the lives of those who have been changed by the gospel. See the glory of the gospel and do not lose heart. But the characteristics of the transformation that we see in Paul's life are not unique to Paul. They were intended to describe every true follower of Christ in some ways more than others, but present in each and every one. And so in thinking about how this applies to us, I just want to end with some just questions of examination to kind of help us to think about where we are and think about how the gospel might be demonstrated in our lives as well. Has the gospel changed you? Have you seen a change of heart, a change of life? Can you clearly see It's transforming power in your life. Have you turned away from yourself, away from your sinful desires, and are striving from striving to live for yourself and without God to seeking to live for Christ? Is that life transformation then evident to others? When people look at you, can they see it? Do you recognize your own unworthiness of salvation that in your best intentions or in your most desperate efforts that you could never save yourself, that you are not good enough, that you can never do enough good to appease God? Do you realize the weight of your sin that apart from the grace of God in Christ, you clearly deserve the eternal punishment of God? Have you received and rested in the grace and power of the gospel? Does the fact that the holy creator God of the universe that you have willfully rejected sent his only beloved son to live a perfect life, a life that you can never live and to lay down that life by dying on the cross to pay for sin, rising from the grave to show that through faith in him, we can have new life. We can be reconciled to God and we can live for him for all eternity. Does that not overwhelm your hearts? Is the gospel precious to you? Do you love Christ? Do you delight in exploring the unsearchable riches of Christ? Is he your treasure or do you treasure other things more? Do you long to make Christ known to everyone, including his former enemies? Does the glory of Christ compel you to share it with others? Do you realize that as a follower of Christ, that in some way you have been called to be a minister of the gospel? And is the glory of Christ being made known in your delight and your proclamation of him? Are you glad to serve him? Do you understand the depth and the wisdom of God's perfect plan of salvation? Does it lead you to confidently and joyfully approach our Heavenly Father? Do you delight in obeying Christ as your Lord? Do you really believe the gospel? Are you willing, if it should be the Lord's will, to suffer for his name and for the good of others? Friends, God has a purpose in suffering. Have our hearts not been encouraged when you have seen another brother or sister in Christ faithfully worship Jesus in the midst of hardship and affliction? 
when others have reviled them and hated them or abused them, when you see those who are, their bodies are riddled with disease and cancer and yet they give glory to God in Christ, are your hearts not encouraged? When you see your fellow brothers and sisters just faithfully serving in the midst of discouragement and hardship and overwhelming difficult times, but yet they never cease to praise Jesus, does that not draw your hearts out to worship him? It does. It's encouraging. It's emboldening. It's edifying. Friends, God is at work in each and every mundane and each and every difficult circumstance of life to reveal his glory for our good. He is in it and he is over it all. He has the power to transform hearts even in the midst of every difficulty or ever every overwhelming experience. It was true for Paul who, as he sat in prison and it is true for us as well. Let our lives be a visible demonstration of the power and glory of the gospel. Let the God, wisdom of God and his goodness and his sovereignty be displayed as we faithfully follow Christ and are changed by Christ in every area and every facet of our lives. Friends, let us not lose heart. This is for your glory and for your joy. Let's embrace this call to be ministers of the gospel to faithfully proclaim the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstance, to both the lost and the saved alike. If he should set us apart to suffer for his sake, then we are willing to count all things lost, even our lives for the surpassing worth of Christ. And if there's one thing I want you to do this week, when we look at our brothers and sisters around you here at Redeemer Church, and you see evidence of God's transforming grace in their lives, praise God for that tangible, present, visible demonstration that the gospel is real and working even in your midst. Praise him for it, and then go and encourage them in it. Tell them, listen, brother, God has used you this week to remind me that the gospel is real. I praise God for the way that he's changing you, the way that he's growing you, the way that I see this text being lived out in your life. Sister, you bless me in the way that God's grace is evidenced in you. Friends, let's do that this week. Let's go and let's thank them for the mystery of the gospel that is made known through the transformed lives that we see all around us. God changes hearts. God is changing hearts. Even right now in this room, God is changing hearts. The gospel is real. May we not lose heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these visible daily reminders of your goodness, your mercy, your wisdom, and your power. That this message is not just a word message from a guy that existed about 2,000 years ago, but it is real and present and powerful even in our lives. Forgive us for the ways that we fail uh, to see it. We minimize it. We cast it aside as being insignificant or optional. 
Lord, help us to delight in what you are doing. May we see your grace being evidenced all around us because we know that you are faithful and you will accomplish all of your purposes, even in the midst of difficulty and sin and in difficult, hard, challenging circumstances and cancer. And no matter what it is, Lord, you are working to achieve your purposes for our glory. And though we do not deserve it, we praise you all the more. Lord, may Christ be sweet to us. It's in his name we pray, amen.